Welcome to another episode of The Inquisitive Analyst. I'm your host, Marcus Yudekang, and it's the show where we chat about business analysis and project management and the triumphs, challenges, and contributions within that field, within those fields. It's inspiring, it's upbeat, and of course, it's inquisitive. My guest today is one of the contributors to the Scrum Software Development Method and one of the founders of the Scrum Alliance. He has authored three books on Agile, and he is also the founder of Mountain Goat Software, Better User Stories Video Training, and the Agile Mentors Community. Please help me welcome to today's show, Mike Cohen. Welcome, Mike. Hey, Marcus. Thanks for having me here today. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, very welcome indeed. Now, I thought maybe I'd ask you a few questions and start off with kind of the obvious, which is your, your field, Agile Scrum. How did, you, how did you get involved with the Agile Scrum and, and what was your path to success? I got started in it um, basically before I got going. I got started doing Scrum in uh, uh, October of 1994, which is uh, about you know six and a half years or so before Agile Manifesto and before that became a big thing. What happened was I was a project manager, kind of a classic project manager, and was getting more and more complicated projects to run bigger projects, more complicated projects. And it was getting harder to be successful. And so I needed to find a way to be successful as the scope of the projects got bigger, as the teams got bigger, everything else. And so I um, kind of looked around, read everything I could find um, on various different processes. One of the books I read was a book called Wicked Problems, Righteous Solutions. Um, it had come out in 1990. Now, again, this is October of 94. This book had come out in 1990. I bought it in 1990 from a mail order book club. This is, you know, 1990, way before Amazon. And yeah. so I was in this book club where um, they'd send you a list of books on computer science and you could pick, you know, one a month and they'd send it to you and charge you. And I bought this book and it was the world's ugliest book. I mean, it looked like it'd been mimeographed. Pages were crooked. I mean, it was, you know, it was only like $10. So, so it wasn't worth mailing back. I just threw it in the back of my closet. And then when it was necessary, four years later, I read the book because it was about project management and uh, alternative ways to manage projects, basically. And it had a, about a three-page description of Scrum in there and said, this had been done in hardware projects. Be interesting if somebody tried this in software. And I thought, wow, awesome. And so I gave that a try on that, that project starting in October of 94, and um, it worked phenomenally well. So I just kind of stuck with that. Awesome. That's cool. Uh, it, it sounds like a great, like, awesome story. You should probably make that into a movie, I think. I'll have Brad Pitt play me, right? There, there yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be perfect. Yeah, no doubt. So I want to I wanna get your brain a few minute, for a few minutes on, on a few Agile items. So yeah, uh, let's start off with, with user stories. What are, what are some problems that you see with writing user stories and, and how can we try and overcome them? <laughs> the biggest problem with user stories are people who learn about them and think everything has to be a user story. Ah, and nice. I'll have I'll have people ask me, it's like, you know, we're building this system. It has no users. Maybe it's like, you know, a satellite or something, right? And it's like, how do we write user stories for it? And it's like, you don't, right? You know, the user stories, they're a great technique. They're absolutely wonderful. If you have users and those users differ in meaningful ways, right? If all your users are the same, you don't really need a user story. And so the big problem is probably the biggest two are both related. People thinking everything has to be a user story. And then the second one is people just getting too caught up in a, a template for user stories. And you've probably seen it where we write user stories as, as a type of user, I want this so that that, and that's a great way to write things, but 
it's not the only way to write yeah. things. Yeah. And so people get addicted to that. And, you know, I kind of tell them like, go back and look at my, my user stories applied book on this. I don't use that template once. I think I mentioned at the very end of the book, right. But mm-hmm. none of the examples are in that template. And, um, you know, yeah, people read that and everybody started putting things in that template and feeling, and it's great, but it's not for everything. So those are the two biggest ones. Yeah, that's right. I, I've, I've heard that many times. There's so many different ways of doing user stories and you don't have to stick to that one, that, me- that method that you described. So yeah. um, we see some business analysts, a lot of business analysts now, they want to become product owners. They're moving into that role. Any recommendations on how a business analyst can best prepare to become a successful product owner? You know, I love that you're saying that because it's exactly the same thing I teach when I'm talking in, uh, especially like a product owner training course, um, because product owners like, you know, in my product owner class, I'll often be business analysts or a product owner who has an analyst and they'll wonder what the difference is. And I think the biggest difference with the, the two roles is that product owners prioritize the work and business analysts don't really prioritize. And so a typical relationship would be a product owner saying, hey, analyst, go research this area, write up all the requirements. Agile, probably in user stories, but go write up all the requirements. And then they come back and the product owner is going to be the one who retains the authority to prioritize, but you know who they're going to rely on. They're going to ask the, the you know, the analyst, Hey, which ones is the most important, which yeah. ones do we, could we skip? Right. But you know, ultimate authority with the product owner. And so the biggest advice on an analyst becoming a product owner is just kind of wait. I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know, just kind of wait, it's going to happen because the product owner is going to change jobs, right? They're going to move on to another company or a different project or whatever. Well, the next product owner is going to be the analyst, right? And so um, it's just, I don't mean wait and like, you know, hey, wait, your, your turn will come. It's just, but yeah. it's going to happen, right? It's, yeah. they're the natural person for that job. And um, and so it's just a matter of, uh, you know, just practicing your skills, just right? get mm-hmm. good at the things you're already doing. Think perhaps about how you would like to prioritize. What do you see your product owner doing that's that's frustrating to teams? What would you do differently when you're in that position? Um, but product owner is a really tough job. So a lot of product owners rely very heavily on their analysts. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities for analysts to assert themselves in a good way, assert themselves into helping their PO, right? What can I do to help you better? And if the PO starts uh, saying, you know, help me with the priorities over here, why don't you uh, run the meeting where we write product backlog items, user stories for this section? do it right and those are all going to lead into being a becoming a product owner as soon as it's possible yeah product owners can't do everything themselves no doubt they definitely need big jobs oh yeah it's huge most definitely um what are some ways that mountain goat software helps organizations introduce agile to their business that is that's assuming that it's a business that doesn't have agile right yeah. Yeah. We do a lot of different things. We go into organizations and can help by training their staff. Um, we either do that by going into a company or going in virtually today, what you do a zoom thing with, with company employees, or we do um, public classes. We have normally like one or two a week where we're doing a public class where anybody can sign up. And then we do engagements where we'll help a company figure out how to become agile. Um, I like to create what we call transition backlog um, of the things that we mean. You know, we like to apply agile to getting agile, right? You don't want to do agile in a waterfall way. So yeah, we have a transition backlog. What are the things we have to do to become agile? And so we'll work with organizations to try to create that transition backlog. The thing that we do that's different is we don't want to be there forever. Um, mm. And maybe that's a bad business decision, but um, 
it's just a, it's my personal interest, right? I don't want to I don't want to go become basically an employee, right? So you know, we go in, we teach them how to do it, and then we move on to the next client. We're always there if they need support, but mm-hmm. we're not the type of company that goes in. And it's like, hey, we'll be here with you for a year, okay. just doing it for you. That's 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 not right for them, and it's no fun for us. So yeah, yeah that's true. Um, Scrum master is the big thing. A lot of project managers becoming Scrum masters. Uh, I guess I should I could ask this one of two ways. Where does the Scrum master fit? in the agile project manager roles and responsibility, or, or maybe it's the other way around. Like, how does this kind of differ from traditional project management? Well, I'll tell you when I first got started doing Scrum, you kind of told you that story about October, 1994 project role, we got going in kind of early 95. And this title Scrum Master did, did not exist. We didn't mm-hmm. have that title back then. I still needed people to run my Scrum project. So guess who I hired? I hired project managers, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in my mind, there's always been two different types of project managers. Um, There were the type that always knew it was about empowering the team, helping the team, removing impediments to their progress. It was always about helping the team. And then there was the other type of project manager that was the the person with the clipboard. And it's like, hey, your name's next to this task. It says Thursday. I don't even understand the task. What's your yeah. corrective action plan, right? Yeah. I hired the good type of, right? <laughs> I hired the good type of project manager, right? And none of the bad ones are listening to you, right? I mean, they're not, they're not on your podcast, right? They're not going <laughs> to listen to this. Well, they're not, they're not trying to get better, right? They're about, yeah. you know, I, I, I mean, I'm a project manager for the prestige, right? Um, I get to tell people what to do or something, right? The good ones were the ones I hired. And, um, you know, like most of us would search for, and I, didn't always get lucky, didn't always hire the good ones, but they were scrum masters. I mean, they were working like scrum masters. They were about empowering the team, anticipating problems, stepping aside and letting the team make decisions. So I don't want to say a, a project manager is just a, or a, a scrum master is just an, an agile project manager. Mm-hmm. So I think there are things that uh, the good scrum masters will do that get a little bit beyond that, but it's very much in that direction, right? The, the, the good project managers are always have always been kind of in the direction of being a good scrum master. They're the type that become great scrum masters. That's good to know. Poker planning or planning poker rather. Uh, Maybe you can explain a bit about what planning poker is, first of all, and then what's the best time to initiate planning poker? And and I mean, does it it really work? Does planning poker really work? Yeah, I believe it does. There's some uh, research that's been done by Magna Jorgensen, a researcher out of the uh, Simula Research Lab and University of Oslo, and he's looked at things like this and um, researched things like structured conversation leads to better estimates, things like this. So I do think it, it works well. The idea behind planning poker is it's somewhat similar, and your audience probably know this technique, wideband Delphi, um, as a way of estimating. And in the ancient Delphi estimating approach, um, we would each write down estimates, give them to some coordinator, and they would uh, um, you know, kind of track things. Wideband Delphi added some communication to that. And so planning poker is kind of an evolution of those. Now, those were you know, coming out of the 1940s. So mm-hmm. planning poker, you know, 50 year newer innovation of that. And the idea is that we have people get together in a room on a conference call, talk about an item, and then all at once say how big they think it is. Um, and, you know, I got the name planning poker from a guy named James Grenning. He's the guy that actually invented the basic approach. And so we'd have people with poker cards, right? And, and, you know, we just used to do index cards and people to get a big black mark and write down one, two, three on them, stuff like that. And you'd hold up your number. And if everyone agreed, we'd write that number down and move on. And this is where it was similar to wideband Delphi is if we didn't agree, we'd talk about it. 
So if uh, if you think it's a, a 10 and I think it's a five, let's talk, right? Let's see why we disagree. And, um, you know, maybe I say why I think it's a five and I talk you up, right? You had a 10, I had a five. But when I say it's a five, it's complicated because of X. And you're like, wow, I didn't even think of X. I thought it was a 10 without X, right? And so so maybe you move to a 15 and I come up to a 10, right? Because yeah. what you said, and we, you know, we're still not there. We have to repeat that. But it was that collaboration, that talking about it and seeing what people disagreed on and why we thought it was big and how we thought it compared to other items. So that's what planning poker is. Normally planning poker is paired with what is known as relative estimating. It doesn't have to be, but most commonly it's paired with relative estimating. So rather than saying five and 10 days in my example, we might be saying five and 10, meaning this will take twice as long as that, mm. right? And if you think about pages in a book, right? Pages in a book is a meaningless metric, right? Are you, you know, you talk about a large print book or a small print book is, you know, Harry Potter or a mathematical treatise, you know, what type of book. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, for me to say, I read, uh, I read 30 pages an hour. It's like, yeah, what type of book, right? It doesn't mean anything. Right. And so relative estimate is normally used as part of planning book, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I noticed from your website, too, that you can buy plenty. You're selling planning poker cards at cost price, which is pretty cool. Yeah, we sell we sell them at cost. Um, the, you know, people it's, it hasn't been as much with the kind of the virtual Zoom world of the last year, the work from home world. But there's just something more fun about doing it when you're holding like real poker cards. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we started printing those up, I don't know, like 15 years ago or something. Uh -huh. And I like having fun at work. Right. And if, yeah. You know, I want to get work done. I mean, it's part of, you know, it's work. You want to do it, but you want to have fun while you're doing it. And it's just something a little bit more fun when you're having the poker cards. And it's always kind of fun when some boss from another department walks by and, you know, sees that and then goes to the development boss, like your team was playing poker in the room. Yeah. Oh no, they're estimating. Right? <laughs> they're estimating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good, good quality cards too. That's awesome. Um, Agile mentors community. Can you explain a bit about your Agile mentors community? How does it work? Uh, the value it provides its users? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. Um, we, yeah, I was getting frustrated a handful of years ago because I was seeing too many agile coaches, great term, agile coach, but they were just coaches, right? And they were not helping their teams as much as they could. They were not providing guidance. And they were embracing a little too much of the idea that a coach doesn't tell you how to do something, right? And there are times when a team comes to you and says, you know, how long should our sprints be? And they really just want an answer. They mm -hmm. don't want you to say, well, what do you think the drawbacks of four-week sprints would be? What do you think the drawback of one-week sprints would be? What do you think we should do? And they just like, what's your recommendation? And like, of all the things you've seen, what do you advise? And there's times, to, there's times to answer that. There's times not to. And so I saw a few too many coaches who were sticking as coaches, not mentors. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to kind of reinvigorate some of the idea that we if you've been there for a while, you probably do have some advice and you can mentor someone. Mm -hmm. And so we created this um, uh, this community called the Agile Mentors Community. And the idea there was, I love our motto. Our motto is mentor be mentored, meaning there's somebody that can benefit from you mentoring them. And then there's somebody that you can learn from. And I've been doing this a long time, but every time I log into there, I learn something from our members. Mm -hmm. um, and there's just so many people there with that are smart about this, doing it in different contexts. I learn all sorts of stuff there. And so mm. it's really about being able to give advice, learn how to help your team, things like that. We talk about coaching too. I mean, coaching is always going to be part of it, but mm. there is a time when it's worth advising someone, not just listening and helping them figure it out. And so the the value is that we have a, a uh, just the, the best community are um, 
a community moderator is uh, uh, Stacy Ackerman, and she's wonderful and it's very friendly, um, useful community. Everything that gets asked there gets answered. Uh, people stay friendly. It's just been great. And that's to her credit. And so it's a community where people can talk. We also do a lot of video events. I think we just did one today, a lean coffee, where we had members come in and talk about issues. Um, yesterday, I did a live Q&A session for about 90 minutes where people can, you know, ask me any questions they want. So if they want, you know, kind of free coaching advice and just be, if they're part of a members, it's just part of the service. They just ask me questions. And so um, we've got one of our other, um, uh, my senior VP in Mount Goat, uh, Brian is doing another one next week. So it's about helping people to get better at it. We started it as a way to extend beyond our courses, right? We do a course. I don't care how good your course is, it's not enough, right? People are going to have questions, right? And they can't ask those questions in the moment because they don't have them yet. They learn them once they get back. So we wanted some way to sort of continue to help people beyond classes. That's how we started the Agile Mentors community. Yeah, I like that. I used to teach at college for a few years and I always said to my students, I'm one person teaching like 20, 30 people. I'm learning more from all of you guys. So let's switch it up. Let's switch it up and ask questions to each other because I need 30 of you to learn from 30 of you type of thing, right? Yep. So yeah. yeah, I had somebody give me advice years ago that I think was just totally wrong advice. I'm curious on your take on this as a former professor, but his advice was never ask a classic question you don't know the answer to. Mm. And I thought it was like, how boring, right? It's like, okay, yeah. I'm the one getting paid to be here, but I want to learn too, right? Yeah. And yeah. so I ask questions, all sorts of all sorts of questions I don't have the answer to, right? And I just, yeah. I want to know what they think, right? What, what have you done? What's worked for this? And I love getting to learn in my own classes. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You never stop learning, no doubt. You're a proponent of scrum stand-up meetings where the team actually physically stands up. <laughs> now, why do you emphasize that the team should physically stand up during the meetings? You know, that might be something that we can start to emphasize less these days because uh, stand-up meetings have become so yeah. common. I mean, you know, they're they're written about in the Wall Street Journal and I've heard them on NPR, all sorts of things, right? They're covered everywhere. Um, so maybe we can stop a little bit, but as they got started, it was very unusual to be in a meeting where you stood up. And so just the act of standing up was unique. It was just different, right? I mean, it'd be like, you know, let's have a meeting where we all pat our heads for the whole meeting, right? It's yeah, just different, yeah, right? You're, yeah. you're aware of a difference and it kept the meeting shorter, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it was the benefit of doing something different that helped. And it was the benefit of standing up as a way to keep the meeting short. When we sit down, we start talking about, I don't know, did you watch The Bachelor last night? Or, you know, how, you know what's, yeah. how's your favorite sports team doing? And yeah. you know, we just have those conversations. And those are fun. And those are part of work. I talked about it, you know, wanting to enjoy work. But when we have those meetings, those conversations, we're adding 5, 10, 15 minutes to every meeting. Yeah. And, you know, it just, I'd rather get in the meeting and get done and then go have fun talking to somebody out after the meeting, right? But yeah. if you and I were talking about sports or you and I were talking about Bachelor, we're boring somebody else in the meeting, right? Yeah. And so just get in, get it done and move on. And one of the things that was powerful for me about the stand-up aspect of these, I was working with a team, this is probably 10, 12 years ago. And there was a guy in a wheelchair and for the daily standup, he stood up um, and he was one of those, um, you know, he's in a wheelchair, but, you know, he can stand up, but it's like, you know, really painful and he can't really walk, but he can stand up out of the wheelchair and he did. Right. And that was, that was just, it was be above and beyond what was necessary. Right. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the team was standing up. He was going to stand up. And then I was like two or three weeks later, 
I'm with just the exact opposite team, right? And one of the issues the scrum master dealing, dealing with is one of the team members who kind of refuses to stand up, right? You know, I can give my update just as well seated as standing, right? And, um, you know, he's, of course, the most senior person on the team, and he's trying to basically trying to demonstrate he doesn't have to play by the same rules that you do, right? And so she finally gets him to stand up, and now what he does is he kind of um, sits on a file cabinet, Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's kind of at the same height as the rest of us, but he's, you know, he's got his butt on a file cabinet. It's yeah, like, yeah. On, this man. doesn't count. Right. Yeah, this doesn't yeah. count. Right. You know, and all I have to tell you is those two stories and you know, which of those two teams was more successful. Right. Um, you know, it's just so obvious and it's, it's not even about the standing up. It's about the, the bonding that we're all doing the same thing. Right. And this guy's standing up as to demonstrate his, his membership in the team. Right. Yeah. This guy in this wheelchair standing up. That was been very powerful for me to see. Yeah. And then especially two weeks later to see the opposite behavior. Yeah, no, it's truly inspiring if a guy in a wheelchair can get up, no doubt. Uh, I just uh, a couple of questions before we close. If someone wants to get into Agile and they, they haven't been introduced to it yet, what's uh, quick tips, one or two quick tips for someone to to enter into the Agile world? I would say one thing, I don't like being here to promote anything. That's not what I'm doing, but we have a set of free videos at scrumfoundations.com. I mean, just go watch those. It's like an hour of videos, um, super well-produced. I have this like awesome editor, video animator, do stuff either. So they're really nice videos. I would watch those. And then I think the way to get started, right? If you have any ability to introduce this with your team is don't feel like you have to go all the way, right? Just, you know, start with iterations, start with standups, right? You know, who's going to object to let's get together once a day for 10 or 15 minutes and talk? Well, actually plenty of people will. So do it three days a week, right? Just, mm -hmm. hey, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, let's just check in right after lunch. Let's just everybody get together and talk about how things are going, right? Or in the morning, whenever is good. Um, and iterations, right? Nobody can really debate the value of iterations, right? There is plenty of room to debate whether Agile is a good idea. Absolutely plenty of room to debate that, right? I think four-week iterations are too short. They should be three months. I'm going to argue with that guy. I mean, I'm going to respect that opinion. I'm going to, you know, be in favor of the shorter iterations, but I can I can buy that. But nobody's going to tell me we should never iterate. We should just, you know, big bang, waterfall, one big delivery on, yeah. you know, the whole system, uh, you know, on anything non-trivial. And so introduce iterations, introduce standups to, to a project, just do those type of things, then start doing, you know, add very incrementally um, at a planning meeting. Hey, at the start of iterations, let's get there for an hour and just talk about what we want to get done in the iteration, right? So I do add it very incrementally in an environment like that. Pick the, the low risk things, the kind of easy wins and just kind of dip your toes into it that way. Fantastic. Uh, this has been a splendid conversation, Mike. I really appreciate your time. And if anyone, anyone want, from the audience wants to get in touch with you, what's a good, great way to do that? Probably just through our website, mountaingoatsoftware.com um, is the, uh, the easiest way to find us. We've got all sorts of stuff up there. So I'd go mountaingoatsoftware.com. Fantastic. So. Well, thank you for your time, Mike. This has been splendid. And have yourself a great and wonderful day. Thanks, Marcus. You too. All right. Thank you.